your Bible, you can open it to Ephesians chapter 2. Thank you for joining me in that prayer. You'll notice today, uh, we're not going to be putting the passage up on the screen to read along. Uh, That might not be popular, and so I want to invite you to do two things. Grab your device or grab one of the Bibles that's in the seat in front of you. And uh, I want to just encourage you in the weeks to come to just open it up. Uh, Get used to opening God's Word with us. We're going to read along together as we study this passage. Um, Not that you won't see other things appear on the screen, but our main driving text will probably be more we're encouraging you to open the Bible with us uh, to pray and and to read and study together on Sunday morning. So that you can find that on page 1006 um, in the the, uh, Bible that's in the seat back in front of you. While you're turning there, let me get us started with this. I don't know if you've heard the story of Dr. Jason Bernard, but he's the first surgeon uh, to ever perform a heart transplant. And he performed this uh, operation on another doctor, uh, a man by the name of Dr. Philip Blayberg. After the procedure, he was checking on his friend and wanted to see if the procedure had gone well, if things were going okay, if if, if the body was taking the procedure well. And as they were uh, finishing up this exam on his body, he asked his friend, he said, Philip, do you want to see your old heart? I don't know about you, I read that this week and I'm like, what an incredible question. Do you want to see your old heart? Like, Wow. So he says, yeah, I'd love to. And so they're in, uh, in South Africa there in Johannesburg, and they go into another room in the hospital, and he goes into a, a safe container and pulls out a transplant safe container that contained this man's heart. And he became the first person that we know of uh, in, that was alive uh, that held his own heart. Some people were correcting me after first, like, you know, like there's some battle stories. I don't want to hear the battle stories. I'm just talking about a heart transplant. And he was holding his own heart. Just think about how profound that moment was for him. And he sat in stunned silence holding a container that had his old heart in it. And after standing just stunned silence for a while, he began to pepper his friend with a bunch of technical questions. After having all of his questions answered, he felt somewhat content and was ready to go. And as he's getting ready to leave, he turns back and takes one more glance at this container that's holding his heart. And he said these words, so that's my old heart that caused me so much trouble. I think one of the most important parts of our apprenticeship to Jesus Our discipleship under his lordship is the recognition of our old life, of the transformation that's taken place in our hearts. You see, that's what takes place for us. In a way, spiritually speaking, we get to stop from time to time and take a look at our old heart. I've said this to you many times before, but we've quoted 2 Corinthians chapter 5, but it's just an example of many other times in your Bible, as you're reading through the scriptures, where over and over and over again, they will talk about how you've become a new creation. When you become a Christian, when you give your life to Jesus, when you're baptized into Christ, something takes place in your heart. You become new. 2 Corinthians 5 describes it this way. It says that the old has passed and the new has come. You are made new. You've had a heart transplant. I've also told you this before, but because we're studying a letter that the Apostle Paul wrote, I don't feel bad mentioning it again. It fascinates me how in tune with his former life the Apostle Paul was. Now, as you read through his writings, you'll hear him talk time to time, and he'll say, hey, I don't dwell on that. I don't dwell on looking back at my former life. I press on and look forward toward the the prize that awaits me in Christ Jesus, and I, I get that. But at the same time, the Apostle Paul was keenly aware of where he had come from. And he paid close attention to it. 
In Galatians chapter 1, verse 13, as he's writing to this church in Galatia, he writes, you heard of my former way of living, my former life. In other words, I think Paul looked at his old heart and said, so this is my old heart. It caused me so much trouble. We get a chance to look back. That's the reason I wanted to open up this way, because I think one of the important things that we might overlook from time to time is the importance of looking back and recognizing how far we've come. I actually think that that's an important principle for any type of growth or maturity. In any arena of your life, one of the ways for you to appreciate where you are is to appreciate where you started. It's to look back and understand how far you've come, how far that you've grown. Alistair Begg describes it spiritually speaking this way. He says, The immensity of the grace of God in salvation is made all the more significant when we recognize our condition before we were saved. So the immensity, meaning for you to truly appreciate how incredible God's grace is. And let me tell you, as a preacher, it gets harder and harder to get up to preach about God's grace because I think many in the church have grown more and more numb to it. It no longer fascinates you. It no longer wows us. That the grace of God saved us. He says, so you want to understand that at a deeper level. Part of that, at least in part, understanding the immensity of God's grace in your life is understanding the condition of your heart, your old heart, before you became a Christian. Which leads us to what we're going to talk about today in the passage that we're going to study. In Ephesians chapter 2, we're going to talk about sin. Aren't you excited? Try writing the sermon. <laughs> because... Quite honestly, a lot of church culture would tell you to avoid using that word or really even honing in on that problem, that sin. Not every church, and don't hear me pointing fingers at any specific group of people, but church culture at large will tell us, like, hey, people don't want to hear about that. When they come to church, they don't want to hear about their sin problem. They don't want to hear about the issue going on in their heart that requires some work. They don't want to hear about it. And so let's avoid that word or even that concept. Let's just talk about what makes people feel good. That's what they want. When they come to church, if you want more people coming to your church, you got to make more people feel good about their life. Now, that's not all entirely wrong. I don't want you to come in here and feel beat up every single week walking out like, I'm a loser. Like, that's not what we're going for. But at the same time, we can't avoid the truth of what the scriptures present to us. And the Bible's very clear that every Christian maturing in Christ needs to have a healthy view and understanding of their sin. And part of the way that you understand the impact that sin can have on your life now is to have a good appreciation for what it was doing in your life before you even became a Christian. So I read this week, though, that most people struggle with this in church, not just non-believers, not just those that are not Christians, but Christians as well. They struggle with this because that, that's the number one reason, even in 2022, that people don't want to come to church is because they don't want to have to face talking about what might not be going well in their life. Some struggle or a secret sin, something that they've been keeping from other people, or just something that continues to rear its ugly head in their life. They don't even want to talk about it. They want to avoid it. So like, hey, one of the reasons I don't go to church is because, man, they just tell me about how much I, that needs to change in my life. And I kind of get that. I don't know if you're like me. I grew up in a home with family members that didn't like to go to the doctor. I don't know if anybody's got experiences like that. Family members are just like, no, I'm not going to go. We'll just take care of it later. And they would just distract themselves with other things so they didn't ever have to go to the doctor. In fact, they flat out refused from time to time. And what was fascinating to me is it was usually the people that needed the doctor the most that refused to go to the doctor. 
It's like I remember vividly family members who had pains in their legs and one family member that even had like a, an awkward like growth. And you're like, hey, like that's not going away. Like let's get that looked at, please. <laughs> and so you're, you're trying to convince them and they'd say, no, I don't want to go to the doctor. No, and they would just like, no, I'm pushing, like not going to the doctor. They would say things like, I don't want to go to the doctor because every time I go to the doctor, it's always about like poking and prodding me. Those were the words I re- remember vividly from my childhood. Or they just want your money. And so they're going to overcharge me for something. I'll just try to fix this by myself. I don't want to go to the doctor because they just want to do more and more procedures. It's just, I'm not going to mess with that. I'm not going to go. Now, I'm sure that there are doctors who do unnecessary surgeries. And I'm confident there are probably doctors out there that are concerned with just getting more money than they are with actually fixing or helping a problem for their patients. But I think, and I hope that you would agree with me, that it is not a wise thing to step back and say, because there are a couple bad doctors and a couple things that I've seen in my life or heard on TV, that all doctors are bad and I just refuse to go to the doctor. In my experience, those are the people that never seem to get better. They never seem to really have any healing take place. The same thing is true spiritually that's true physically. Right? Many people don't want to go to church because they don't want to deal with somebody telling them, hey, you've got a sin problem. You've got this thing in your heart that's corrupted your heart. And it needs to be dealt with. And when it's not dealt with, it does more and more damage to you. And much like a physical body that's dead, a soul that's dead has same attributes. It's not growing. It's not alive. It's not producing. It's not thriving. It's suffering and causing more and more damage to everything that is around it. But I think the number one reason that my family members didn't want to go to the doctor and many people don't like to come to church is because we don't want to be faced with our mortality. They didn't want to go to the doctor and hear why their legs hurt or what that growth was coming from. Spiritually speaking, we feel the same way. We don't want to face our own mortality. So we avoid it. We excuse it away. We say, I don't want to be a part of that. But here's the the problem. Much like in that medical world, when it comes to our spiritual health, we must understand sin and the impact that it has on our spiritual lives. As a matter of fact, I would contend to you that you will miss out on understanding and appreciating parts of grace if you ignore sin. To appreciate the light, we have to understand the darkness. And that's what Paul's going to do in this text. Remember that the Apostle Paul is writing to a group of Christians. So this text by nature isn't necessarily evangelistic, and yet it also is. So if you are a follower of Jesus, if you're a Christian in the room today, as we study this passage, this serves as a vivid reminder for you. And if you're not, I would ask you to do me a courtesy and consider the descriptions that Paul offers and what it might say about your soul today. Second, or, or Ephesians chapter 2, we're going to study verses 1 through 5. We're going to start with the first three verses. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world, and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest who lived that way, we were by nature deserving of wrath. So much fun, uh, right? Like this is like the least fun text to say, welcome to New Hope, you rotten sinners. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> like, th- like, oh man, like this is really hard to read. It just is. It's difficult. 
And I would encourage you in the, in the following weeks, so as follow-up to what we're studying today, to meditate on this. This is a hard text to read. Even in 2022, it feels like it's like this politically incorrect thing to say. Hey, you were once alienated from God, dead in your sins with little hope of rescuing yourself. How does that feel? Eugene Peterson, in his paraphrase, The Message, translated this passage this way, and I find it helpful. He said, it wasn't so long ago that you were mired in that old stagnant life of sin. You let the world, which doesn't know the first thing about truly living, tell you how to live. You filled your lungs with polluted unbelief and then exhaled disobedience. We all did it. All of us doing what we felt like doing when we felt like doing it. All of us in the same boat. It's a wonder that God didn't lose his temper and do away with the whole lot of us. Sombering at best. Right? It's a difficult thing. And I think apart from the community of believers, the church, nobody really takes that seriously. And then as you kind of peel back the layers of the community of believers and you look at the church, many Christians don't take that seriously. We just kind of push it aside. Yeah, yeah, that's over. It's done with. I don't have to talk about it. I don't have to think about it. I'm done. And yet Paul is writing to a group of Christians telling them, no, you need to remember this about your life where you came from, so you can appreciate how far that he's brought you. But you got to understand where you came from. So how does he describe it? Well, let's look at a few things. The first thing is, it's bookending our verses. Verse 1 and verse 5 have this phrase, you were dead in your transgressions. Meaning there was a boundary that was set, right? There was a line that was not to be crossed, and a transgression and a sin is you cross that line. You intentionally stepped over it. You broke that boundary. You disobeyed that law or that command. As a result, you were dead, spiritually dead. Now, this is an intense thing to talk about that, again, I think has lost its uh, power on us in the culture we live in. When he says that you were spiritually dead, when you were in that state of being spiritually dead, you had no hope outside of Christ. You had no hope. It's like being in this pit, this deep pit, and you think somehow you're going to get yourself out, but you can't. You're completely hopeless in there, dead, completely separated from God, producing no real, vibrant, thriving life inside of you, and yet trying to with everything that you were doing. And so we go about our lives in this state of spiritual death. Right? We go to our jobs, we save for the future, we, we go to family gatherings, we go on vacations, we build friendships and relationships, all the while dead inside, knowing it when we're honest, that these things aren't giving me what I thought that they would, and we pursue all sorts of different things to try to fill that. And we don't even really sometimes see the bad that's in us. We see bad as it's in somebody else. It's distant from us. And so we're like, yeah, bad is there, of course, but it's always in someone else. It's never in me. In that state of death, we just don't even see how we are spiritually dead. And so we do things like we put security systems and locks in our house and we get a dog and a gun and we're just like, everything bad, keep it out, push, push, push. And yet what Paul's saying here is this, no, like when you're dead, it's not so much the things that you do, though those are impacted and that lead you to it. It's, but when you're in that state of death, when you sin and recognize in my sin, I'm separated from God. I'm now in a spiritual state of death. It's a condition of your heart. What Paul's saying here in verse one and five, bookending our passage is this, you need a heart transplant. You need a heart transplant. You need this transformation to take place in your life. Why? Well, because verse two, he says, because the way that you're living has led you to a place of spiritual death. You were living the ways of this world after the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. But what does that mean to follow the ways of the world? 
Here's one way of thinking about it. You can describe that a a lot of different ways. The one way that's fascinating to me is 1,500 years ago, St. Augustine wrote that the way the world works is pushing its way towards three things. The driving factor in the culture, 1,500 years ago, he observed, were three things, money, sex, and power. Think about that. 1,500 years ago, he made that observation, and it's still true today. 1,500 years later, following the ways of the world really do look like you're pursuing these things. So we pursue money because we think it's going to fix what's dead inside of us. If I can just get more stuff, if I just save enough, if I just get that thing, it'll make me feel good. And it does for a little while. That's the deception of it, isn't it? Like you save up enough and you get that thing. I like the way one preacher said it. We are enamored, fascinated with the things of future garage sales, right? It's the truth. Let it sink in. Like, boy, if I just get that thing, it feels good. And it does. It does. Marketing, pe- people in marketing are geniuses because they can tap into that desire, that, that small dopamine hit that comes when we get that new thing for a little while. And so, so much of our driving force in life is to get that next hit, if you will, of the stuff. And I get that new thing, and then a little while later, it's just at the garage sale. Why? Because it doesn't do for me what it used to do for me. It fades. And St. Augustine was right. Like back then, same thing true today. We are pursuing these things. He says power. Most, most people, high levels and low levels. Now we look at everybody else as bad, but when you would do an inventory of your own dead heart, you recognize a lot of what I do is about power. I want influence and control. I want things done my way. And I don't care what has to happen if you're really honest about the state of your soul. I don't really care what has to happen because when I get things done the way I want things done, it makes me feel good for a little while. Until the pain of those decisions comes back to haunt you. And the regret of those decisions and the shame begins to cloud your vision for everything else in your life. Why? Because it won't satisfy. It can't fix what's dead in your heart. And then there's sex. It's been a problem since the fall. This deep desire to gratify our desires inside of us. We just pursue it. If I want sex, I go after sex. If I want pleasure, I go after pleasure. If I can't get it physically, I look at it on the internet. We just, it drives so many of our decisions and we, we do manipulative little things to hide things and to do things and to make sure nobody ever has to see it. Why? But if you're really honest, it's the driving force in your life and it just doesn't satisfy because your heart's dead because you need a heart transplant because you need transformation to take place. And he says, when you're living that way, you're living like those who are led by a spirit of disobedience. And I find that word fascinating. Because when you look at the original language that Paul wrote this letter in, when you get to that word disobedience, when you translate it, it comes into two words. It means disbelief, not believing. But I actually appreciate that they translated disobedience. Here's why. Because every time you disobey, is that not exactly what you're doing? You're not believing. God says, this is the wisest way for you to live. And a lot of people will argue with me. They'll say, well, the Bible doesn't say anything about this specific thing. So, No, but the Bible speaks a whole lot about wisdom and what it means to make wise choices that honor God. And so God has given us this pathway to spiritual wisdom. And the Bible says that when you become a Christian, you have this helper living inside of you, the Holy Spirit, that really helps you pursue that wisdom. And God has said, you have this pathway to wisdom. And I've told you the best way for you to possibly live. And when we disobey that, 
whether the command is clear or like we would say black and white, yes and no, right and wrong, or there's a little bit of wisdom needed to discern and the the need for discernment to choose what is right and what's wrong, whatever that is, when we willingly choose to say, I'm not going to do this, I'm not, I'm going to do this. What we're saying is this, God, you've been really clear to me that I should go this path, that I should make these choices that will honor you, but I don't believe that that's going to satisfy me. I don't believe you. So I'm going to do this. No, no one wants to use that kind of language, but this is what the text is telling us. Disobedience is really disbelief. I don't believe you, God. And you've told me that that will satisfy. You told me that that is the new way for me to live, but man, I just feel like if I could do this, I'll get more satisfaction. And so we go back to these things. We pursue these things. And then Paul says, when you live that way, when your life is, going down that path when your heart is dead, you are deserving of the wrath of God. Boy, that's a hard word. What a difficult word to just really wrap your mind around. It's not saying you are deserving of God's worry. He's really worried about you. Or he's deeply concerned for the, and he is. I'm sure he's concerned. He doesn't worry, but I'm sure he's, I mean, I don't want you to do this. Sure, but that's not what the text says. The text says that when you choose this life, when your heart is dead and you're separated from him and you've not put your faith in Christ and as a result, you're going down this direction, then you're deserving of his wrath. And his wrath is gonna be poured out on you. As one preacher put it, why? Why do we deserve his wrath? It's because you've committed cosmic treason. When you willingly choose to go against what God has called you to do, the way that he's told you to live, when we go this, we've committed cosmic treason. We've kicked God off the throne and put ourselves on the throne. We pursue our own desires, our own wants. Like Augustine said, we want power and sex and money, and we pursue those things at the cost of our soul. And Paul is telling these Christians, don't forget that that's where you came from. You all did that. And so in this room, I would say every single one of us, nobody, nobody's exempt. We all lived that way. We all pursued those things. And you might say, but not like my neighbor, Bob, that guy did it way worse than me. Yeah, okay, you still did it. And it had this cosmic, this cosmic uh, punishment that was coming our way. The wrath of God to be poured out on us. The Bible says that's what happens when we live according to the flesh. This cosmic treason. Let me give you an example of this treason, the way that this works. A a friend of mine gave me this example. Said a lot of the guys that he meets with, when he begins to disciple them or or talk to them around the issue of pornography, a lot of the guys will say, hey, when it comes to pornography, it's too strong of a pull. I can't resist. Like it feels like I just can't break away. I can't resist. And he'll tell them, actually, you have the ability to turn it off like a light switch. And they'll argue with him, like, no, I can't turn that off. When I am pulled to look at these things and to, to participate in this, it's just too strong for me. He's like, no, you could turn it off like a light switch. I'm like, what do you mean? He's like, okay, imagine you're looking at something on the computer and your mom walks in the room. It's gone, isn't it? Or your wife walks in. And it's not that you've lost your lust or gained some incredible amount of self-control in that moment. It's that the power over your spirit in that moment of embarrassment for what that person was going to think of you is a lot stronger than your desire to pursue that any longer. The problem for us is this. When it comes to picturing God's presence in our life, we've lost connection with it. 
We would all say in our heads that God is present with us all the time. We would all say we desire to invite God into the everyday moments of our life. But then when it comes to living it out, it's as if he's not really there or that his presence doesn't have the impact on us that it should. We've minimized the presence of God to the point that the thought of his presence doesn't make you hesitate anymore about your sin. And the Bible says that's cosmic treason, deserving of the wrath of God. Because you've minimized his presence and role in your life. This is where we all lived. Every single one of us lived like that. Nobody's off the hook. Every one of us in need of a new heart. In need of a heart transplant. And then the way that he does so beautifully, Paul never leaves it there. He says, but God. Two of the most beautiful words ever written. But God, I was an enemy of God. The way that I lived, the decisions that I made hurt his heart. I pushed him away. I rejected him by the life that I was living. I was alienated from him, not wanting to be close to him. I deserved to be rejected by him. I deserved his wrath to be poured out on my life. But God. But God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love, his deep love for you, his love for you, made you alive in Christ, even though you were dead in your transgressions. He gave you a heart transplant. And it's because of his grace that you've been saved. You see, this verse, 4 and 5, some of the most beautiful descriptions of what we call the gospel, the good news of Jesus, meaning I needed a heart transplant and he gave me one, and I didn't deserve it. I didn't deserve it. I didn't deserve that operation of grace to take place in my life, but he provided it for me. Even when I didn't deserve it, I needed to be rescued, and he rescued me when he didn't have to. There's this cluster of words that appear in, in this chapter. It appears a lot of times in Paul's writings. You're going to see it either directly as words or the concepts really jump off the page to you, and they do so in our five verses right here. Those three words are justice, mercy, and grace. Three words that meant so much to the Apostle Paul. Justice meaning you get what you deserve. So be careful what you pray for. (laughs) Meaning God's justice is you deserve wrath, you get wrath. Like this is what you deserve. The justice of God. Meaning he would be justified in pouring out his wrath on us. Like Peterson wrote in his paraphrase, it's no wonder he hasn't done away with the whole lot of us. Because he'd be completely justified to do it. That's the justice of God. And then there's mercy. Meaning you don't get what you do deserve. So in his great mercy toward us. He didn't give us what we deserve. But instead, then there's that third word. That beautiful word, grace. That means we get what we don't deserve. And so instead of justice and because of mercy, we got grace. That we were saved. And he asks us, don't forget. Like, you got to remember that you were rescued. And two times in the last week, I've had conversations with people about a trip that I took my oldest son on when he was 10 years old to New York City. And on this trip, part of the trip, that we, we did a lot of things. But one of the things that we did on the trip was very intentional. We went to the 9-11 Museum. And he was born well after that. But I'll never forget it. I'm sure many of you in the room can tell me exactly where you were that morning. 
One of the stories that is displayed at the 9-11 Museum, if you've been there, involves a 24-year-old man named Wells Crowther. I've got a picture of him here. He's on your right. He was an uh, equities trader on the 104th floor of the towers that morning. When the planes hit, many witnesses said that it just completely threw his body across the room and against a wall. But he's able to get up. And when he came to, kind of got his senses, he made his way over to a desk. And he grabbed a, a red bandana, a red handkerchief, and he wrapped it around his face so that the smoke wouldn't get into his eyes or he wouldn't breathe it into his lungs. And then rather than looking out for himself, he began to look around to see who could he help, what could he do. And he saw a coworker whose legs had been completely destroyed, and so he picked her up, he scooped her up, got to the nearest stairwell and was making his way down, flight after flight of stairs, and was met as they were coming up, he was coming down with firefighters, and he handed her off to the firefighters, and then he turned around and went back up. to find someone else to help. He's credited with saving 12 lives that day. 24 years old. When they cleaned up the rubble, they never found his body. But they found the red bandana. And it's on display at the 9-11 Museum. If you've been there, you've seen it. It's a vivid reminder of the rescue that took place and the cost that it took to perform that rescue. So two things for you this week. Go buy a red bandana. Put it somewhere where you'll see it and it'll remind you of that former life. How it took a rescue to get you out of that pit that your sin had put you in. It took a heart transplant, and it cost everything, and it was worth it. Next thing is this. I am grateful that we as a church are pursuing prayer more intentionally. And what you heard at the beginning of the service, this prayer circle, it's no accident that we start with praise. Just thanking God for any and everything. And after a text like this, I can't help but think that many of us should probably spend some time this week meditating on our former life. Remembering, remembering your need for that heart transplant and then what it took to do that. And this fascinating thing happens when we praise God. Gratitude wells up inside of us. And see, gratitude prevents entitlement from sinking into your heart. Many Christians live in judgment of other people and pointing out the flaws, and, and those are the ones that have lost sight of grace. But when you hone in on grace and what it took to give you what you did not deserve, it's really, really hard to be judgmental or entitled because you didn't deserve it. No one does. And so this week, my challenge to you is this. Spend some time reflecting on the justice that you deserved and the mercy and grace you received in its place. Let's pray. Father, we are forever grateful for your mercy, your rich, deep mercy, and for the grace that you've offered to us. We didn't deserve 
but you've offered it to us. And for those of us who have accepted that grace, who have made that decision, who have pledged their allegiance to Jesus as King, as Savior, as Lord, we are so eternally grateful for the transformation that's taken place in our lives, that we now have a former life. It's not the way things are anymore. We are a new creation. God, for those who have not made that choice, whose hearts can feel this morning that they're dead, helpless, but not hopeless, pray that you'd give them the courage to come and talk to somebody because they don't have to leave here without getting a new heart. We ask you for this. We offer you these next few moments of praise in the name of Jesus and all God's people said, Amen.